UX podcast episode 168. Well, what if what if this design is crap? What if what if this design actually isn't the right thing to do? Then you're just shoving crappy designs down the throat of someone else who doesn't want to accept it. And what I tell them is that I I actually had to approach the book with a number of assumptions. And one of those assumptions is that your design actually is the right thing to do. You're listening to UX Podcast, coming to you from Stockholm, Sweden. I'm James Roy Lawson. I'm Pat Axbom. And I'm Chris McKinn. We've listeners in 171 countries, from Italy to Venezuela. And today, um, we're it's two years on almost um, since we talked to Tom Griever. And it is two years, almost exactly, since he um, published his book, Articulating Design Decisions. Now, that was back in 100, episode 119. Mm-hmm. But um, it's been probably one of our most popular shows. Um, yeah, one of the most downloaded and requested and one of the most tr- visited transcripts online. The, the transcript well. gets uh, visits every single week still. Um, and um, it, it was clear that what Tom was talking about um, was something that was, was, was really important. Now, in the original interview, um, in episode 119, we were joined by Chris McCann, and Chris has joined us again. Mm-hmm. Hello, Chris. Here, the second time around. Hi. How are you doing? And who are you? Who am I? Well, I'm part of the grumpy old men. Um, (laughs) You guys are the other grumpy old men. Uh, And uh, based in Stockholm, I'm the uh, UX lead and UX manager for EpiServer. And what we did last time, and I think it worked really well, and this time too, is a mean pair of consultants, whereas Chris works in an organization as UX lead, and I think it adds another dimension to to these kind of articulating design decisions. I definitely agree. I've gotten a lot out of it um, when I read the book and in in those two years uh, up to now. So, Tom, it's it's been two years um, since the book came out, um, and you've had a lot of opportunities to talk to a lot of people um, about it. Um, what What has been challenging for readers in particular um, around the book? Uh, yeah, so I, I will admit that I, I didn't anticipate quite just how this content or these ideas would kind of strike a chord with people. And I think that the reception to the book has been, it's been overwhelming. Uh, just, every, you know, I've been invited to participate in conferences and do workshops. I get emails from people uh, and messages, you know, on social media. Um, and I, I never anticipated that it would kind of have the, the kind of uh, positive effect that it, that it has. And I think it, I think it goes to show that there, there is a conversation to be had around this topic. This is a problem that all of us face in articulating our design decisions. And I think everyone approaches it a little bit differently. And so, yeah, some, some of the feedback, most of the feedback, I would say, actually has been very positive. I've had people tell me that, like, I'd completely like changed their lives, right? And I, <laughs> I don't, I don't get that honestly because like I would read a book, like a really good book, and I'd go, "Oh, this is a really good book, Great. that's awesome." But to like actually take the time to message an author and make like kind of these grandiose like exclamations about how wonderful it was and how it affected their work has really touched me. Like I, I'm surprised, honestly, I, and and genuinely honored that I got to that I got to create something that that has helped people. Um, but then occasionally there's negative feedback too, right? Occasionally people sort of misunderstand what I, I, I said, or they kind of read something into it. Maybe they don't kind of get the context. Um, and that's great because it allows me to engage on a level with them so that we can all have kind of a shared understanding 
of what the problems are uh, in you know our organizations and in our processes because I think this is a really important topic. I mean, I, well, I listened I listened back to to our interview from almost two years ago um, earlier today, and you know I, I've not listened to it in the in the intermediate period, um, and I wish I had because you know it's, it's the reminder of some of the things we talked about, some of the topics we talked about. Um, there's just there was just so many elements of it which is which is useful on a daily basis. Um, but so, so what, what were the kind of contexts that other people had that, that maybe you, did, you didn't recognize instantly? Yeah, I think that, I mean, one of the most common pieces of, you know, if I'm going to say negative feedback, it could be constructive criticism too, right? <laughs> um, that I hear from people is maybe that it, it's just too long and it's too wordy, right? Uh, and I, I totally, I actually, I'm not at all offended by that. That is, that is nothing but like 100% like who I am. And I think it perfectly describes how I would write a book um, and how I would talk about these issues. And so that, and, and, I, and I was very purposeful actually about writing something that was more in story form. And I think it's probably to a disadvantage that it's an O'Reilly book that has an animal on the cover uh, so it kind of gets lumped into this category of programming books where you can kind of like open up and on page one, you know, example A, write this code and bam, you got something out of it, right? My book is very much more of like a meandering through my career and telling you stories about people that I talk to and things that happen to me. And unless you're expecting that going into it, like unless you're expecting kind of that Saturday morning, uh, you know, sit by the fire and drink a cup of coffee kind of book. Uh, then you're probably going it, it to, it may take you a while to get into it because it is several chapters of kind of explaining my history and context before I like kind of really get to the, to the, to the meat of it. But I was purposeful about that. Um, and, and I think that's something that people say that I'd kind of like, well, I don't, I don't think I would change that. I don't, I don't think I would go back and do that differently. Um, I wanted to have a book that was approachable and readable and, and human, right? It's not a textbook. It's not a programming book. It's a, it's, it's a collection of stories from my life and, and my career. Well, you're obviously doing something, right? Because I, I don't see the praise diminishing, actually, after these two years, which is kind of amazing with this type of book, I think. So kudos to you. And now, so so what, what are some of the things now two years in uh, after writing the book? What are some things you think you left out that you wish you had included in the book? Making it even longer. <laughs> right, exactly. Make, make it even more personal. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think, I mean, one, one obvious thing that people ask me about is, uh, like email. Uh, and this is maybe one of the most common questions and I don't address it in the book at all. All of the uh, scenarios and kind of situations I address in the book or that I kind of give you tools and ideas for how to handle are, you know, face-to-face -face meetings or even, you know, kind of video meetings. Uh, and, and, and so I don't talk about email at all or how to like best communicate design decisions over email. Um, my answer to that, usually like at a conference, because this does that this is one of the most common like audience questions at a conference. How do you articulate your design decisions over email? Um, my first and shortest answer is don't. Just don't do it. <laughs> Avoid it at all costs. Email is a terrible medium for trying to communicate uh, like your thinking behind some of these decisions, at least concisely. Um, and then secondly, if you really are forced into a situation where you have to do it, I like I have a few suggestions. One is to record a video like and I, I actually do this quite often um, with my clients because I work remotely. Um, I'll send them a two minute video with sometimes with slides, sometimes just of my face. And I explain 
the design decision. I show the mock-up. I show the alternatives. I talk about how we got to where we are now. And I, I record it and practice it. And it takes uh, takes a couple of hours to get it right. And then you send it. And that that is worth so much more than trying to write that up uh, in an email. But if you've got you know a busy executive, someone who is not gonna could, not gonna read that email, and that's the risk, right? You send this long, beautifully written email, and some executive opens it on their phone at the airport, waiting in line to get on the plane, and they just fire off a response: "No, this is horrible. Please change it back to what I said." Right? But if you send them an email instead, that's like, "Hey, can you just take?" Two minutes to watch this video real quick where I can you know kind of explain what my thinking um, it'll do a couple of things one it'll make sure that your tone and your intent was communicated but it will probably also make sure that that person waits until they're in an environment that is appropriate for them to actually take the time to watch the video and consider what you said um, whereas we're accustomed to reading emails anywhere um, on the train even while we're driving even when we shouldn't <laughs> right and so um, you kind of force that person to be in an environment where they can more kind of carefully consider what, what you said. So that, that's at least one thing that comes to mind. I think it's, but this is this is really, really interesting topic because we didn't touch this, well, you didn't touch it in the book and we didn't touch it at all in the previous interview about communicating design decisions through text mediums because now you know people listening out there i mean their world is is filled with um you know trello boards and and jira systems and um and, and slack or, or or and email or, or remote teams too i mean it's mm. uh, it's not really common or it's it's a luxury in some cases where you get to work physically with people so um i haven't i didn't really reflect on it when i when i read the book because i thought i i thought the stories were good i thought that communicating things with stories was was a, an effective way of, of doing things so i'm not in that camp that, that didn't appreciate that but i i think i can understand why because th these all have inherent challenges especially where you are working with teams very very far away and might not have the same language skills and uh, things deteriorate really really quickly so yeah and i and i think one thing and i don't i don't think i mentioned this in the book i work remotely a hundred percent of the time and so those challenges of communicating design decisions over Slack and email and video, like those are very real to me. I think a lot of people assume because a lot of the stories are seem to be written in the context of like you're in the room with the person. And a lot of times I am in, in some of those stories because we do. I travel on site to visit my clients. But the majority of my, my workday is, is done at home in my home office um, using those mediums to communicate this stuff. And so that, that's the context in which I was writing. Is there anything in your book that is wrong <laughs> that you feel now that, well, maybe I shouldn't have written that? <laughs> well, there are definitely, okay, so one of the other common um, pieces of feedback that people either either ask me about or just kind of outright say that they, they, they disagree with or that they, they feel is kind of wrong. Um, there are a couple of different parts of the book that people tell me feels um, a little bit deceptive or um, maybe manipulative. Um, and there are definitely some parts uh, and stories that I tell where I, I can I can totally see how someone would perceive it that way. Um, and so let me like just get get it out of the way like right off the bat. Like I don't think that we should lie to our stakeholders. I don't think we should purposefully try to deceive them in order to just get our way. Um, and I think that there are definitely portions of the book that that have come across that way for for people. And I never intended that. 
Um, and and th there, are, there are two things in particular in the, in the book that strike people this way. One is the story of uh, painting a duck. Uh, and this is maybe one of the kind of the, the funniest, most like tongue-in-cheek parts of my, my conference talks and my workshop and, and, the, and the part of the book. And if you're not familiar with painting a duck, it's the idea of, of purposefully adding a distraction to your designs so that rather than, instead of your stakeholders changing something that you like, they'll say, oh, you know, remove the duck and it'll be done, right? So it's kind of this intentional thing that you added in order for it to be removed. Um, and then there was, there's another part of the book where I, t I talk about how, like, even if, you, even if someone is expressing an idea in a design review or a meeting, um, giving you feedback, telling you something that they think that needs to be changed, even if, even if you think it's crazy and off the wall, that you should still write it down, that you should still provide them with verbal feedback and, and affirmation that you're listening to them, even if you have no intention of like going back and, and implementing that. Um, and I think in the, the context in which I present it, it sort of sounds like I'm suggesting that you should have this forced interest, right? That you should, you should pander them, you should pander to them, excuse me, you should pander to them in a way that is not genuine um, and that you should kind of, and, 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 and that you should like build these relationships that are sort of fake. Um, and that's not at all what I'm, what I'm suggesting. Um, I do think though, that there is an element of where we get in these situations, we hear people have, you know, crazy ideas where we may be more inclined to be like, no, that's a terrible idea. And we can't react that way either. Right. So there's a delicate balance of like giving people, you know, verbal feedback and, and, and feedback in your posture and the way that you respond and writing down what they say to make them feel important. You do want to make them feel important. You want to make them feel valued, but we can't do it in a way that's disingenuous. And I think, I think there's definitely a fine line there um, to, to be able to communicate that. I think, you know, when, like we are, we're aware of so many, um, you know, cognitive um, behaviors and ways of kind of um, using using uh, our knowledge about biases, really. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's something that's, that's inherent, an important part of what we do. Mm. So, so not applying that same knowledge to to articulating design decisions or communicating them would be would be kind of odd in some ways. I I, I agree. I, I have a really hard time seeing how you could you could see that that is is deceptive. To me that's being a, a really good listener and 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 really trying to include uh, all the different persons in the in the discussion. I mean, it, it I think the 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 contrast to that is sort of the the I'm the designer, I know what I'm talking about and just disregarding it with a wave of a hand because clearly they don't know the this this these special skills of design, designing things. So, um, I, I, when I read it, I remember thinking that that was a really that was a really good idea of, of really including them in the discussion, even though, you know, maybe that 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 idea wasn't going to be integrated. But um, so I, I thought it was a great idea. I I've used it since then, and it's worked really well. So I'm 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 behind you on that one. Well, and and I whenever people have addressed this with me, I have I have kind of two thoughts on on the subject. First is that I, I don't think that it's an inaccurate picture of how life and relationships work because all relationships are for mutual benefit, right? Um, I used to live in China uh, where the concept of guanxi is kind of everywhere. This idea that people help people because they know they'll get help in return later, right? It kind of obligates you to the other person. And at the time, I used to tell our friends in China that we, didn't, we don't have this concept in Western culture. We don't, we don't have this, this, this idea that you're like beholden to someone else simply because you have a relationship with them. But I've since come to realize that we actually do. It's just mm -hmm. not nearly as explicit. People are always 
jockeying and negotiating and trying to figure out how one person can help them, even if they don't realize it. And it's not actually a bad or a negative view of relationships. It's actually quite positive and liberating to think, well, gosh, we're all here to help each other. Like we have these relationships to help each other in the areas in which we have expertise or can help each other get ahead, right? And so I don't think it has to be a negative view. Um, the second thing is that there's psychology at work when we change our behavior regardless of what we're actually thinking under the surface, right? This is uh, something called like acting your way into a new way of thinking, right? It's the idea that our physical habits and our actions, the way we react to people, eventually has an effect on our mental and our emotional state, right? Just like there, there's research to suggest, well, smiling will actually make you, you happier. Just the act of forcing yourself to smile can actually make you happier, right? And that's why, this is why actors actually, they get so wrapped up in their characters and they can't get out of character, right? So if I know that I want to empathize with my stakeholders, that if I really want to like get in their heads and understand their perspective, but they're actually on the surface, they're driving me crazy and I'm having a really difficult time getting there. One of the best things I can do is to behave as if I already understand them, right? And ultimately long-term, this is going to have a real effect that will allow me to better empathize with them and hopefully work with them to find the right solution. That was really good sentiment, Tom, I have yeah. to say. It was, yeah. uh, it, uh, and we're, we're getting into how people communicate and not so much design anymore. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, exactly. And, and that's, but that's in a very, very important point, Chris, that you know, it is one thing producing the, the, the design, and it is another thing um, articulating, communicating what that stands for and what it means, and, and, and gaining the... I mean, because you know, we're pack animals. So, so you know, we, we, always, we have to make sure the pack is with us. Mm. And, you know, that's not, we're not bad people. We're not trying to kind of create wars in some of these rooms. We're just trying to kind of get consensus, get agreement that this is the right thing to go forward. Exactly. And that's just as important as the design work. Yep. It's, yeah. Yeah, so to, to bring it back to, like, the example I shared from the book about, like, writing down something uh, taking notes of, of design feedback someone gave you, even if you have sort of no intention of like following up on that, nodding your head in agreement, right? Just to make the other person feel comfortable that they that you were listening to them. That's not an inappropriate way to behave. Now, it's probably not popular to point it out, right? I don't think anyone would really want to admit that they behaved differently just to get what they wanted, right? But there's a huge difference between manipulating people to get what you want and changing your behavior in an effort to put the best foot forward. And my goal is to always believe the best about people and to work together for mutual benefit. And I think it can be done without without playing tricks. Yeah. I don't I don't I don't consider this to be unethical behavior. Well, that's an interesting question, but that that's sort of the feedback you got that you, you people thought you were unethical or something. That's a really tough thing to say because ethics is such a complex subject as well. You're talking about intent, and that was not your intention, but then there's the outcome, and then there's the impact, the long-term impact of what you're doing. So if you're changing your behavior and coming, becoming someone that you maybe did not want to be, then that, in a sense, could be unethical. Uh, but in the way that you're portraying it in the book, I, I feel that you're actually making an effort, like, like Chris said, to put yourself in the other person's shoes. I mean, and I, I don't. I, I have a hard time seeing that it's it's unethical mm -hmm. because if you if you write it down and you and you legitimately evaluate that with all of the 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 design critique um, methodologies, um, 
and it does, it doesn't fulfill the needs of the user uh, or the needs of the business, and then you can you can say okay we've we've looked at it and we moved on. I mean I th I think that's a I think that's a fair and professional thing to say, and, and but I also believe on a, on another level that it's a being a nice person and listening to what they had to say, which is which is as you pointed out just as important as as anything else. So I have a hard time seeing this as unethical, but. Well, and I've I've tried to kind of understand where this feedback comes from, and kind of okay, what it, what the, the people that have told me this, what is their context? How, where are they coming from that they would read it this way? And I think ultimately it boils down to this idea that we believe our designs should speak for themselves. That like literally, people actually think they should be able to walk into a room, throw their designs on the table, and people will just they'll just get it. They'll just be like, wow. Oh, it's immediately obvious to me that this is the most amazing design and we're going to do it. And it doesn't work that way. And so I think for people who have that perspective, the idea that they should have to build a relationship in order to convince someone that they have expertise in this area and should be trusted with the solution seems a little foreign, right? I think it seems, it seems like a step they shouldn't have to take. Well, if my design is good, then I shouldn't have to do these things in order to get it approved. It should just automatically kind of go through the system. Um, and so I think it feels a little dirty to people, this idea that, well, if my, you know, if my design were good enough, then I shouldn't have to work that hard to get it through, right? It should just mm. make it. Yeah. Uh, Chris asked me earlier today, or asked us both actually, it's like, you know, what would we like to um, learn or be included in a, in a design leadership course? And, you know, I'd, just a few hours earlier, I'd listened back to the interview from two years ago. And I mean, basically, I said, well, yeah, th this is the kind of thing, I think, which in, in many ways separates senior from junior. I mean, mm -hmm. the, having the experience of being able to understand that you're in a business context, there are CEO, CEOs that are going to prod you over a stick sometimes, like you used, example you used in the book, to kind of work out whether they can trust you. They don't want to change something, really. They just want to kind of know that you're the guy for doing this job. Right. Um, you know, being able, to, being able to sense that, being able to pick up on that and, and maybe kind of play along um, okay, manipulate the situation. That's a skill you learn through through years, and hold back that urge to snap like an angry dog and kind of defend your design because that wasn't the point. And and you know, so I think from a design leadership point of view, this is exactly one of those things that's important. Uh, I I agree. I, I mean, in communication and being able to to explain why you're choosing to do certain things uh, from a di design perspective is absolutely absolutely critical. And I think it also brings up that you made a good point and f you go back to your your example tom about someone who thinks that their design should speak for themselves that would be great um if everyone was thought exactly like every designer in the world and that's but that's an impossibility and the other thing is is that companies are organizations that are made of people and they're not perfect so just because the design may be perfect and it may be so intuitive, you, you can just lick the screen and you'll know instantly that this is the thing to do. Somebody might say, no, we're not going to do it. We're going to do something else. Right. And, and I, I'm, I've been thinking a lot about the word uh, manipulative ever since it came up, the, the, ever since the first time that someone mentioned it to me about some of these tactics in, in the book. Um, and if you look at most definitions of the word manipulative, it, it, it sounds something like you know, using skill to influence the outcome. And when I think about it that way, I'm like, well, that, that's exactly what I'm proposing, right? A potter uses skill to manipulate a lump of clay into something useful and beautiful. 
Um, where the problem comes in is that most of these definitions also end with something like to your own advantage or for mm -hmm. personal gain, right? And it's kind of those selfish motivations that undermine my meaning when I, when I think about what we want it, how we want to influence the outcome. But it's definitely an interesting word to consider because we do actually have some selfish motivations, right? We, we want our work to be approved because we believe it's in the best interest of both the user and the business or the stakeholder, and then it will ultimately be good for our careers. So it, it still does have that selfish motivation. Mm -hmm. So I, I think it's possible to be quote unquote skillful in these conversations without acting in our own self-interest, right? So I, I think the word artful is maybe slightly better, right? It's like, I looked at, so I found the word artful and I looked it up too. The definition is marked by skill in achieving a desired end, right? And, I, and so I think that's a much better description. We need to be artful in the way that we present our design decisions to people. What, whatever, whatever word you choose, it's, it's not my intent to promote deception or trickery or manipulation, right? We want our stakeholders to be in agreement with our proposal and the way that we present it has a huge bearing on the outcome. And, and that's the point. Yeah, and I can really uh, relate to uh, the concept of transparency and making something not unethical because I've been in situations where I'm talking to a salesperson, I know what they're doing, I know they're trying to influence me, but they're so likable, so I let them. <laughs> and I, I'm, it's sort of that, that situation I would want to get to that people actually do know what I'm trying to do because I'm obviously trying to solve my design, but I'm doing it in a way so that you'll find me likable because I'm using all these metho methods that you outline in the book sort of uh, to, to help them understand where I'm coming from because I understand where they're coming from. We're all playing the same game. Yeah. And transparency is important, right? I think that's the key. People ask me about yeah. the, you know, painting the duck. Well, like, where, where's the line? How, like, how do you know that you've gone too far? And I tell the, I tell them that, like, the line is when you would not be comfortable telling someone that you actually added that duck. Like, the, the purpose isn't to, to deceive them. Like, if, if someone asked me, like, well, you know, why would you add this? Like, well, I, I added this because I wasn't sure if you would like it or not. And I wanted to give us something to talk about. And I wanted you to participate in the conversation. If you can't tell them that, then yeah, then yeah, you are deceiving them. You are lying. Um, another example from the from the book uh, that kind of falls into the similar category is the concept of ringers. I, I describe a, a technique that is used a lot in, like, television and newscasts where, you know, the reporter back at the station um, or, you know, at the, at the news desk will say, we'll ask one last question of the reporter on the field. And that question was contrived. It was decided on and agreed on earlier. Um, and that, and that person will like have a, an, another expert there that's just ready to answer that, that question, right? Oh, how convenient that you asked me that question because I just so happen to have this person here that, that can answer that for you, right? It's a, it's been around in television for a long time. And I talk about doing this in our own meetings where you want to bring people with you that can back you up and actually prepare them in advance, right? Go over the notes, talk about why you did what you did, give them the language and tools that you have in order to help your design succeed. Because if there's more people in the room that are saying, yeah, this is the right thing to do, then those stakeholders are going to be more likely to uh, agree with you. And I think it kind of falls into that same bucket of like, well, gosh, isn't that just like trying to manipulate the situation? Like, no, you, you, you need to be, you would have to be comfortable telling the stakeholders that you've done that, right? Like, like, okay, you guys, I brought Chris along here. Chris has worked with me on this project and we're here to present our work to you. We're, we're not gonna lie to them about the fact of, of why I brought Chris along, right? Everyone knows that that's why we're here. Um, and so I think it's appropriate to kind of use these strategies to make sure that we communicate well um, so that we can, you know, move the project forward.
Mm. Yeah. No, yeah, sh- you shouldn't need to feel a little bit dirty or kind of yeah <laughs> <laughs> wrong at the end of it all when you come out with these things. Then you have crossed the line. Yeah. Wow, uh, lots of inspiration there, Tom. Uh, I'm definitely going to go back and listen to our previous interview with you as well. And I hope we have you back for your three-year book book anniversary as well. <laughs> Thanks. I would love to do it. Great talking to you guys again. I'll see you in uh, in an, another year. You know that the the whole thing there about oh text-based you know communication or articulating design ideas with with email and and Slack and 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 so on. You know, I, I really didn't think about that when we talked when I read the book and when we talked about it um, two years ago. But you know, it's we have we're doing this all. You know, we're writing stuff, having weird conversations all the time about what we're designing. Um, yeah. I was also imagining it as real physical meetings when I was reading the book. Yeah, uh, and obviously that's not at all what he always meant. And uh, but I really liked what he said about video because that's my go-to thing as well. You mentioned Slack. Don't make, get me started on Slack. I hate Slack. Well, but that's another thing. Yeah, but it, but video it's the re- I use to send to people so that they can understand. The, the background uh, and, and, and what, what type of work has gone into it, the research and everything, and not just artwork, because if you just send artwork, people are not, go- not going to get it. Mm. But, but the reality of people, like I mentioned in the interview, the mm. reality of, of the world we are in is instant replies to emails, chat conversations that are live. Um, you know, this, this is what we have to deal with. Um, so you're not, you're not just presenting your ideas or articulating them in a rehearsed, controlled environment where you're learn of learning the players in the room and learning how to play them you're responding knee-jerk in a slack channel and that's that's how your day goes so i mean even though tom's advice about not doing it sounds sounds brutal and sounds sounds almost kind of like a cop-out actually it, not to me it, it, no no no, no <laughs> but on the, i mean i mean on the surface it sounds like you know just don't do it but in reality he's probably quite right it's the thing about holding back from diving into some of these conversations. Or just really thinking twice about it. I mean, I think we have a tendency to just, just because you can write it quickly is maybe not something that we should do. Um, maybe you should stop and reflect a little bit more before you jump into that. I mean, I mean, one of the things about Slack and all these, these other sort of instantaneous things is you feel, you feel obliged to answer it right now. Um, but because otherwise it's lost in the history as well. Well, yeah, but n- let's not start going this on Slack now, <laughs> um, because yeah, it's it, it's it's like puking up all the messages after that. But I think also is that maybe you shouldn't answer right away. Um, maybe there's some sort of internal thing that you have to say. Slow it, slow it down yourself, and not yes. do that. So so I'll I'll put it to you then. Though. If if we understand that you need to pause, reflect, and not just kind of like you know, instantly reply, the other. 15 people in the Slack channel maybe aren't going to do that and they're not going to be as restrained. So so a snowball starts rolling down the hill in front of you and you're seeing mm. all these replies go past. Yeah, do that. What do you do? Don't use Slack. <laughs> no, but that that would be that that, that would be yourself from the channel. I know that that, 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 that would be too, that would be too mm. easy. I mean I mean I would throw in a lot of uh, I mean you can throw in lots of things into the conversation uh, that w- that would that would slow it down um sort of as you would in a meeting, electronic pauses, you sort of say, yeah, mm. um, yeah. But you can also lead. You lead by example. Yeah. If you start do sharing stuff in a more reflective way, people will see the worth of that mm. and actually probably copy that behavior more. So what we're saying is that you you need to reflect and pause, but not very long, because you need to still get in there before a conversation gets out of control. 
and you lose the the window of opportunity to articulate something in a good way. Perhaps yes. Yeah, that's, oof, that's hard. Yeah. But that, that's yeah. that sounds really, really, you know, hit or hit or miss. I mean, I mean, I, I guess I would think, what's the consequence of it if the, if the conversation does go out of control? Um, um, surely I can I can craft another opportunity to try to articulate what what you know what I want to say. Mm. I think there's a bias towards at least in the software industry. There's a, a huge bias towards we got to do it quickly. And no one can really ever explain to me why we have to yeah. do it quickly, but we have to do it quickly. So everyone wants to move fast. You know, it's you know it's part of that sort of um, sort of culture that's that's in a lot of these organizations. And I just wonder if maybe that's not the, really the direction to go, or maybe we should uh, build build in pausing and reflect reflecting before we before we jump and do. Yeah, totally agree. And don't use Slack. Yeah. <laughs> you can also say, "Let's let's do a meeting." If you know exactly. it's, a, it's an issue that you have to discuss, let's do a meeting. Schedule it. Yeah, mm. and then yeah. give you time to prepare. I mean, I mean, even even if it's a video meeting, I mean, you still mm. you can still slow things down substantially by by having those kinds of meetings. And there's a lot more communicated through the the seeing the face and yeah. the context of where one's sitting. So going back to one the one of the original points in our interview with Tom before, um, you can do the the yes and. Yes. So you, mm -hmm. Yes, that is an excellent point. We should schedule um, exactly. a, a conference call, Skype meeting, mm -hmm. whatever real life meeting to discuss this. Which is interesting because when Tom was talking about that, the, this whole thing about being ethical or not ethical and, and, and writing it down, and, and to me that's a, an extension of the yes and. It's the same idea. I mean, I mean, b being positive and moving moving forward, and not just um, not just shutting it down because uh, they're not. They don't understand the, the genius of the design. Mm. So, um, show notes and links from this episode are available at uxpodcast.com. Um, if you're not already a subscriber, then um, please um, add us to wherever you are listening to us right now. If you're already a subscriber, then tell a friend about the show. Thank you for taking the time to listen. Remember to keep moving. See you on the other side. Knock, knock. Who's there? Ken. Ken who? Can you walk my dog for me? <laughs>